Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There probably isn't any other time in American history that has been quite so mythologized as that of the Old West. Ask anyone you know and they'll probably have some idea in their minds that the western frontier of the 1800s was full of rugged cowboys riding horses off into the sunset and getting in constant shootouts with Indians or bandits. We can blame Hollywood for much of what we think we know about the era. The silver screen has given us a highly inaccurate vision of life on the open range. Long before superhero movies became all the rage, some of the earliest films being made were about cowboys. This dates all the way back to 1903's The Great Train Robbery, a silent film about a gang of outlaws who rob a steam locomotive. But even before motion pictures came into vogue, Stories of cowboys and Indians still had already worked their way into the public's imagination, thanks to the dime novels that began being published around the start of the Civil War. These were the American cousins of the so-called Penny Dreadfuls that were all the rage in England. These booklets could be purchased in practically every newsstand or dry goods store in America for only a nickel or a dime apiece, hence the name. Back then, publishers geared the books to appeal to the largely uneducated masses. They were full of wild adventure stories that presented average Americans a romantic view of the world, and in particular, life in the West. But as it turns out, the Wild West wasn't quite as wild as it was made out to be. Take the way Native Americans are often depicted in a lot of old westerns, for example. Many cowboy movies tend to treat the indigenous tribes like something straight out of a zombie movie. Practically any expedition into Indian territory meant the white interlopers were going to get attacked by bands of marauding savages. But in reality, most of the major clashes with Native Americans came in the form of attacks by the United States Cavalry. One of the standard methods that had been employed by invaders dating back to Christopher Columbus to justify mass genocide has always been to depict the native tribes as vicious savages. In reality, most of the pioneers traveling west had relatively peaceful encounters with the native tribes. Yes, there were certainly some violent altercations over the years, but we're talking deaths in the hundreds, not the tens of thousands that are widely believed. In fact, many tribes became trading partners with local towns and settlements, and, let's face it, it just wouldn't be good business to kill your customers. As far as the settlers themselves go, it turns out most small towns throughout the West were actually pretty peaceful as well. As settlers pushed further and further West, local governments or other organizations sprung up to create and enforce the rules people were required to live by. This included rules to adjudicate matters of property and crime. 
It may also surprise you to learn one of the most common practices many local governments enacted was to practice gun control. If the movies have taught us anything, it's that practically everyone was toting a rifle or packing a six-shooter. In fact, many towns had their own strict gun ordinances in order to prevent the place from turning into a shooting gallery. It's true most ranchers and early settlers would have kept a gun or a rifle for protection, but not everyone in the Old West carried a firearm everywhere they went. Many of these gun laws could be strict and people were often prohibited from packing heat in public. In fact, the most famous gunfight in American history, the 1881 gunfight at the O.K. Corral in Tombstone, Arizona, was actually sparked by an effort by local law enforcement to enforce the town's gun control rules. Also keep in mind that even though that gun battle has become legendary throughout history, it was also probably over in less than 30 seconds and didn't even actually occur inside the OK Corral. Rather, all the shooting actually occurred in an alley behind the corral. It was because there was such strict gun enforcement that by contemporary standards, gun homicides were actually pretty rare throughout the Old West. Cattle towns such as Tombstone or Dodge City only averaged about one or two homicides a year. Although the number of deaths could be higher in some mining towns where greed had a way of bringing out the worst in people. For example, Bodie, California, during the gold rush, averaged about 29 murders per year, which extrapolated out to today's numbers was a murder rate about three times higher than Miami in the 1980s. But factored all together, the death rate due to gun violence throughout the Old West remains relatively low. Likewise, something else that wasn't as common as the movies would have us believe about the Old West was that bank robberies happened all the time. But in reality, most small-town banks would have been built only a couple doors down from the local sheriff's office. Making getting away with such a robbery a pretty risky proposition. Some estimates claim there were probably only about three or four bank robberies across 15 states within a 40-year span of the 1800s. Stagecoach and train robberies were much more common, considering they went through isolated areas with little protection that also provided lots of escape routes. Yet another thing the movies have given us a false impression of was that cowboys were all white men. In truth, the Wild West was actually pretty culturally diverse. Many of the skills we attribute to the American cowboy actually come to us from the Mexican vaqueros and Spanish caballeros were skilled in roping, horse riding, and cattle driving. Likewise, in the days following the Civil War, a lot of newly freed slaves became cowboys in their own right. It's estimated that about one in four cowboys was black. Back in the 1800s, the Mexican government opposed slavery, but that didn't prevent a lot of white settlers from pushing into the Mexican territory that would become Texas and California, bringing enslaved people with them to work their farms and cattle ranches. By 1825, slaves accounted for roughly 25% of the Texas settler population, and that number grew steadily higher during the years that followed. Although the Civil War never really reached Texas soil, since many Texans relied so heavily on slave labor, Texas ended up siding with the Confederacy. A large number of Texas men took up arms and headed off to fight the Union. This left their slaves behind to tend the farms and ranches. As a result, many of these enslaved people learned the skills of the cowboy, 
everything from breaking horses to driving cattle, and even how to shoot guns. And when the Civil War was finally over and these people were freed, they still had all those skills, and many were even hired by some of the ranchers and farmers who now found themselves with a severe labor shortage. There were also some other former slaves who turned those cowboy skills to law enforcement to make a living. One such individual was a remarkable man named Bass Reeves. He was a former slave who went on to become one of the most legendary lawmen throughout the Old West. David Kennedy, the curator of the U.S. Marshals Museum in Fort Smith, Texas, has described Bass Reeves as the most prolific law enforcement officer in the history of the United States. Some stories claim that as a U.S. Marshal and town sheriff, Reeves arrested more than 3,000 criminals in his day and shot and killed as many as 14 men. There are even some historians who claim Reeves may have been the inspiration for one of the most famous fictional cowboys of all, the Lone Ranger. I'm Nate Hale, currently riding the open range in my horse-drowned podcasting wagon, and this is The Conspirators. Back in the Old West, there were a lot of different reasons someone might turn to a life of crime. For some, it was a matter of necessity. Robbing people for money or their cattle was simply a way for some desperate men to put food on their tables. Hunger can be a powerful motivating factor, after all. But Bob Dozier wasn't like that. He started out as a prosperous farmer, and he turned to a life of crime purely by choice. It's difficult to say exactly what he was looking for, a life of adventure, or perhaps he was just driven by greed. In any case, Dozier became a sort of jack-of-all-trades in the criminal underworld. His crimes included horse theft, cattle rustling, robbing stores, robbing individuals, stagecoaches, and even a couple of those banks I mentioned earlier. He also acted as a fence for stolen jewels and was even involved in a few land swindles. He was also believed to have murdered several people and even resorted to torture to obtain information. So as you can probably imagine, Bob was highly sought after by a number of lawmen. Some of these included several of the U.S. Deputy Marshals working for a notorious hanging judge named Isaac Parker, who presided over the U.S. District Court in Fort Smith, Arkansas. At the time, this was the only federal court with jurisdiction over the lawless Indian Territory. For several years throughout the mid-1800s, it was well known among cattle rustlers and other desperados that the Indian Territory was a place where a criminal could hide out free of the law. At least that's the way things were until 1875 when Judge Parker's court first assumed jurisdiction over the territory. After that, the judge enlisted the service of dozens of U.S. Marshals tasked to head out into the Indian Territory to round up wanted outlaws. This included a former slave named Bass Reeves who spent years tracking the elusive Bob Dozier. In 1878, when Dozier heard that Reeves was after him, he sent word to the lawman to stop hunting him or he'd kill him. But Reeves remained undeterred and instead sent back his own message to Dozier 
that sooner or later, the outlaw would have to stop running, and when he did, Reeves would find him. Several months later, Reeves got a tip that led him to this Cherokee Nation in present-day Oklahoma. On December 20th, 1878, Bass Reeves and a posse men rode deep into the Cherokee Hills as a storm bore down on them. Reeves and the posse men decided to find somewhere to make camp for the night. As they rode their horses toward an area with shelter, a gunshot went off, whizzing by just inches above Reeves' head. Reeves and the posse men dashed for cover, expecting to hear more gunfire erupt. Only for a moment, none came. Reeves caught a glimpse of a shadow moving through a clump of trees and he fired twice at it. Several gunshots came blasting back out of darkness. Reeves and his companion dove for cover. Reeves lay flat to the ground and scanned the area. He spotted his attacker in the trees and was able to recognize him from the face on the wanted posters he'd been studying for years. It was Bob Dozier and he was cackling wildly. Reeves realized the man must have thought he shot him, but Reeves startled Dozier by suddenly standing up. Reeves was a big man, solidly built and standing at least six foot two, which would have been considered extremely tall for the day. He shouted for Dozier to drop his gun. Dozier crouched down and raised his rifle, but Bass Reeves was a far better and faster shot. Reeves fired only once. The bullet caught Bob Dozier in the neck, killing him instantly. Reeves was known far and wide for being a crack shot who rarely missed his target. Some stories claim he was banned from taking part in local turkey shoots. These were some rather gruesome shooting competitions where the competitors would string up a turkey by its legs while the would-be gunslingers took turns to see who could shoot the turkey's head off. But Bass Reeves became so good at it that no one liked the idea of seeing a black man beat a bunch of white cowboys. There are so many stories about Bass Reeves that sound like myths. And yet we have historical records to back up some of the wildest claims. Back during his lifetime, Reeves' name became so legendary some criminals would actually turn themselves in immediately when they learned who was hunting them. Reeves was so dedicated to the law, he even arrested his own son for murder. Reeves was likely born in July 1838 in Crawford County, Arkansas. He and his mother were enslaved by an Arkansas state legislator named William Steele Reeves which is where he took his surname from, as was the custom among slaves and slave owners back then. In 1845, William Steele Reeves packed up his wagons and drove his enslaved people down to Texas, after the state entered the Union. They settled near the town of Sherman, just across from the Chickasaw Nation. It was here that Bass Reeves grew up, and as a result, he always considered himself a real Texan. For a time, Reeves worked as a water boy in the fields. He went on to become a blacksmith's helper and eventually became William Reeves' personal valet. As the man's valet, he performed a number of duties, part butler, part coachman, and even bodyguard. Reeves learned to ride horses and was even taught to handle guns. He proved to be an exceptional shot with a rifle, a skill he would hone later in life as a freed man. After the Civil War broke out, Texas sided with the Confederacy. Among the young men who went off to fight the Union was William Reeves' third son, George, who enlisted with the 11th Texas Cavalry and became a colonel. He took Bass with him to the front lines. Bass Reeves later in life told reporters he was at several major battles in Pea Ridge, Missionary Ridge, and Chickamauga. 
So the story goes that at one point during the war, Bass and George Reeves were playing a friendly game of cards when things suddenly turned a lot less friendly. The colonel was being an even bigger horse's ass than usual, so Bass cold-cocked the man with a massive roundhouse punch, knocking him out flat. Knowing he'd just signed his own death warrant, Bass had to get the hell out of there pronto. He stole a horse and rode across the Red River into Indian Territory, which would later become the state of Oklahoma. This was somewhere Bass could be safe from retribution because the law of the white man had no sway there. He was taken in by the Seminole Indians, where he learned to speak the languages of the five civilized tribes. It was also here that he enthusiastically honed his shooting skills, becoming a crack shot with both a rifle, as well as an incredibly fast draw with a pistol. In 1864, Reeves left his adopted home in the Indian Territory and married a Texas woman named Jenny. Over the next few years, the couple settled onto a small farm in Van Buren, Texas, and began having children. It was here that Reeves got his first chance at police work as more and more outlaws came to realize there was, in effect, no law that could touch them in the Indian Territory. The indigenous people who had been displaced and forced into the Indian Territory had their own courts, but these laws only applied to their own people. In 1887, the Dawes Act allotted part of the land to tribal members, leaving the rest of the territory to non-indigenous settlers. This meant that anyone not part of one of the tribes living in the territory existed in a sort of gray zone where no law could touch them. Along with a number of criminals who sought refuge in the area, so too did a number of former slaves who formed settlements throughout what is now present-day Oklahoma. Some of these black settlements were incredibly prosperous, such as the part of Tulsa, Oklahoma that came to be known as Black Wall Street. That is, until one day in 1921, gangs of angry white men burned it all to the ground. But as a result of the number of violent criminals who took advantage of the loophole that allowed them to live freely in the territory, the number of murders and other violent crimes throughout the region skyrocketed. Several newspapers began printing editorials demanding action be taken to clean up the territory. In 1875, Judge Isaac Parker was appointed to the bench in Fort Smith, Texas, where he vowed to bring law and order to the territory. Judge Parker put out the call to recruit 200 new deputy marshals. Although records indicate he initially only managed to hire about 50 or so at the time. The pay was good. Reeves, for example, earned about $3,500 in 1883, which would have been equivalent to $94,000 today. But... The work was also extremely dangerous. The Marshal Service is the United States' oldest federal law enforcement agency. It was founded in 1789 by George Washington's administration. Since then, more than 300 officers have died in the line of duty, and roughly a third of those were killed patrolling the Indian Territory. Over the years that followed, Judge Parker was able to recruit more than a 1,000 deputy marshals. And of those, it's believed that around 50 of them were black. Bass Reeves was among the first to join up. Bass gained a reputation for being completely fearless as he went out on lone wolf-style missions deep into the Indian Territory tracking fugitives. He relied on the tracking skills he'd learned from the Seminoles to nab criminals. Among other tactics he employed, Reeves would sometimes disguise himself when he was tracking criminals. Such was the case in 1884 when he was tracking down a wanted murderer named Jim Webb. 
Webb was a known hothead who got into a violent altercation with a reverend named William Stewart. It all started when Webb was working as a foreman on the Washington McLish Ranch, and Stewart, who lived on the property next door, performed a controlled burn that got out of control and accidentally spread to the ranch. The two men got into an angry shouting match that turned physical, and Webb ended up murdering the reverend. So it came that on a stormy day in June 1884, Bass Reeves finally caught up to Webb. He and his posse men were riding along a muddy trail among the outcroppings of the Arbuckle Mountains. The two men had already covered more than 200 miles tracking Webb down since they left Fort Smith. Keep in mind, this was not the first time Reeves had ever arrested Jim Webb. The first time was just days after Webb murdered Reverend Stewart. On that occasion, Reeves and his posse men disguised themselves as trail-driving cowboys in order to gain entry to the Washington McLish Ranch. Webb allowed the two men to come in and eat, although he remained suspicious. Both he and his right-hand man, Frank Smith, kept their sidearms ready and a close eye on the two strangers. Reeves waited until something distracted Webb. At that moment, he sprung up and grabbed Webb by the throat, drawing his six-shooter with his free hand. Smith was startled and fired two shots that went wild and missed hitting either Reeves or his posseman. Only Reeves didn't miss. He fired one shot from his Colt revolver that spun Smith around and dropped him to the floor where he bled out. Webb could barely manage to gurgle out the words that he surrendered. Reeves transported Webb back to the Fort Smith jail that had become known as Hell on the Border. Only he didn't remain there too long. Several of his associates banded together and helped post the man's $17,000 bond, approximately half a million dollars in today's money. After which, Webb immediately skipped bail. Reeves spent the next several months tracking the man down once again. Reeves caught up to the man in the town of Bywater. Reeves' posse man John Cantrell approached the store first. He peered in through a window and spotted Webb inside. Cantrell motioned to Reeves, who was on horseback. But Webb spotted Cantrell, and he turned and made a running leap through a window on the opposite side of the store. Webb ran for his pony, but Reeves managed to cut him off. Webb turned and darted for a clump of brush nearby to use for cover. Then he drew his revolver and opened fire. The first bullet tore a button off Reeves' coat. Before Reeves could dismount, another shot tore the bridle rein from his thickly scarred hands. Reeves dropped down off his horse and drew his Winchester rifle. Another bullet tore through the brim of his hat. Reeves steadied himself, raised his rifle, and fired twice. Jim Webb crumpled to the muddy earth and lay still. So the story goes that as Reeves approached the dying man, Webb's last words were to tell the deputy marshal that he wanted him to have his revolver and scabbard as a present. He told Bass with his dying breath that he had murdered 11 men throughout his life, and he'd hoped to make Bass number 12. One of the most famous people Bass Reeves ever arrested was the most legendary female outlaw in the Old West. Myra Bell Shirley became better known throughout her life as Bell Star. She was actually born to a wealthy family in Carthage, Missouri, where she was educated at the Carthage Female Academy and taught music in classical languages. But after the Kansas-Missouri border war broke out, Bell's father John encouraged his son Bud to join Quantrill's Raiders, 
a gang of roaming murderers who committed atrocities wherever they went in the name of the Confederacy. In June of 1864, Bud was killed during one of these raids, after which John sold his store and moved with his family to a farm near Syene, Texas. According to some stories, it was there that Myra Shirley met up with the gang led by Frank and Jesse James and Cole Younger. Soon, Myra, a.k.a. Bell, became smitten with Cole Younger, and she was taken in to become part of the gang. Bell's love affair with Younger didn't last, and by some accounts may not have happened at all. In any case, she eventually married a Cherokee man named Sam Starr and settled down with him and his family in Indian Territory. During this time, Bell Starr learned how to plan, organize, and fence stolen horses. Her home also became known as a safe house where wanted fugitives could hide out. In 1883, Bass Reeves arrested Bell and Sam. Bell was found guilty of horse theft and sentenced to serve nine months in the Detroit House of Corrections. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you Google Bass Reeves' name, the one thing you'll find mentioned about him again and again are the claims that he was the inspiration for the Lone Ranger. The first time where this idea was broached was in John Ravage's 1997 book, Black Pioneers. The book included a brief chapter on the life of Bass Reeves and included one footnote which asked the question if Reeves could have been the inspiration for one of the most famous fictional cowboys in history. This idea was picked up and further expanded on by historian Art Burton, who wrote what is probably the definitive biography of Bass Reeves, Black Gun, Silver Star. The character of the Lone Ranger first appeared on a radio program in 1933 on the Detroit radio station WXYZ. The show proved to be a major hit, spawning a series of books that eventually led to a hugely popular TV series that ran from 1949 to 1957. This has also led to numerous comic books, movies, and video games all about the masked cowboy hero. Burton believes that stories of Bass Reeves' legendary exploits leaked out from the Detroit House of Corrections, where many of the people Bass arrested, such as Bell Starr, were incarcerated. These stories would have filtered their way to the radio producers who turned them into the legend of the Lone Ranger. Burton, in his book, points out that Reeves would sometimes use disguises to track and arrest felons, similar to the black mask worn by the Lone Ranger. He also notes that Reeves would often employ posse men who were members of some of the local native tribes, much like the Lone Ranger's companion, Tonto. Court records also indicate that Reeves sometimes rode a gray or white horse, which Burton contends inspired the Lone Ranger's famous steed Silver. Burton also wrote about a story in which Reeves paid a silver dollar to a family who aided him. Burton believes this may have led to the story of the Lone Ranger's famous calling card of leaving a silver bullet behind. Although Burton admits that none of this is definitive proof that Reeves was the inspiration for the Lone Ranger, 
He stands by his belief that Reeves is the closest American lawman we have to the fictional ranger. Today, the idea that Bass Reeves was the inspiration for the Lone Ranger has become widely accepted. Even though some historians dispute this idea, it hasn't prevented major news and media outlets like CNN and the History Channel from running shows promoting the idea that the inspiration for the Lone Ranger was a black man. In fact, there's a lot that remains in dispute about Bass Reeves' life. Many of the articles you find about Reeves claim the man was illiterate. Although, several other historians say this was unlikely because of how effective he was throughout his career. Being illiterate would have proved to be a major impediment for the prolific lawman, who served countless written warrants. And although the most common numbers you'll read associated with Reeves is that he arrested more than 3,000 fugitives throughout his long career, and shot and killed 14 men, still other historians claim those numbers are exaggerated as well. Although Burton thinks those numbers are actually too low, he believes Reeves may have killed more than 20 men during his lifetime. As for the theory that Reeves was the inspiration for the Lone Ranger, some historians have explained how each of the points in favor of him being the fictional character don't add up. Reeves wouldn't have been the only lawman to wear disguises to catch criminals, nor would he have been the only one to have hired an Indian guide to help him track fugitives. In fact, Tonto didn't even show up until episode 11 of the radio series when producers realized that they needed somebody for the Lone Ranger to talk to. Likewise, although Reeves probably did ride a white horse at some point in his life, he would have ridden hundreds of horses of all colors and varieties as well. And although the story about Reeves giving the family a silver dollar might have inspired the Lone Ranger's silver bullets, you also need to consider that silver dollars were a common currency back during Reeves' career. We even have letters written by the radio show's producers that indicate the real inspiration for the character was their desire to create an American hero that was part Robin Hood, part Zorro, and part Tom Mix. Long before John Wayne appeared on the silver screen, Mix was the most famous Western actor of his day. I should point out that he even once starred in a 1923 film titled The Lone Star Ranger. But even if Bass Reeves wasn't the inspiration for the Lone Ranger, that doesn't diminish the man's remarkable exploits throughout his life. It wasn't just all the gunfights, close calls, and daring arrests he made throughout his career. But also remember, he was living a life where the so-called Code of the West would often be overshadowed by bigotry everywhere Reeves went. And as the West became less wild and more settled, that also meant it grew increasingly more difficult to be a black man in rural America. During the late 1800s, throughout Oklahoma and the Indian Territories, white racial tensions increased dramatically. Throughout his career, Reeves often encountered prejudice, including white men who flat-out refused to be arrested by a black person. In 1884, Reeves' rifle accidentally discharged while he was hauling a wagon load of prisoners back to Fort Smith. The stray shot struck and killed his cook, a black man named William Leach. At first, the shooting was written off as a tragic accident. But after the marshal running Reeves' district was replaced by a former Confederate officer, Reeves was arrested for the man's murder. This came almost two years after the incident had occurred. And even though Reeves would eventually be acquitted and allowed to return to work, he still spent six months in jail awaiting trial. But this marked a downward turn in the life of Bass Reeves. He was forced to spend his life savings on his legal defense, including selling the farm he'd settled on years earlier. Reeves went off to Paris, Texas to find work, leaving his wife and children behind. His wife Jenny died of cancer three years later, 
Reeves wasn't there to bury her, leaving the duties to his son-in-law. Together, Reeves and Jenny had 11 children, although by 1903, three of them would be dead and another three would wind up in prison. This included Reeves' own 21-year-old son, Benjamin, whom he arrested personally for the murder of his wife. In 1896, the United States Supreme Court ruled in favor of separate but equal segregation in the case of Plessy v. Ferguson. This legalized the Jim Crow laws that were rampant throughout the South. It is notable then to consider that even after the ruling, Reeves still was able to arrest a white landowner who allegedly took part in the lynching of a white woman and a black man who had been living together. Burton cites this as the only known occasion where a black policeman arrested a white man during this time. In 1907, the Oklahoma and Indian Territories officially became part of the Union as the state of Oklahoma. The very first law passed by the state was a Jim Crow law that effectively banned Reeves from serving as a deputy U.S. Marshal. After that, Reeves briefly took a job as a police officer in the city of Muskogee. He was in failing health by then, but he still managed to walk his beat with the aid of a cane that he needed ever since taking a bullet in the leg during a shootout. The person who injured Reeves was less fortunate. Reeves killed him. Bass Reeves died of kidney disease on January 12, 1910. His funeral was well attended by both black and white people who came to pay their respects. For many decades after, the life of Bass Reeves was almost forgotten in history. It's only been in the last couple decades where historians have unearthed the man's story, and as a result, he has regained a newfound popularity. Reeves has been depicted in numerous television shows and movies, and oftentimes you'll see TV specials about the history of the Old West that still cite him as the original Lone Ranger. In May 2012, a statue of Reeves was erected in downtown Fort Smith. To this day, no one is exactly sure where Reeves is buried. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I just want to remind everyone I have a Patreon account set up where you can sign up and get access to an ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. Besides that, patrons of the show get access to all sorts of other bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and much, much more. We also have a merch store where you can buy all sorts of Conspirators-themed items just in time for the holidays. You can find phone cases, shirts, mugs, and even more. If you're interested, I'll put a link to both Patreon and our store in the show notes. Another way you can help support us that won't cost a thing is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know a lot of podcasts say this, but it really is true that your ratings and five-star reviews helps us out tremendously. And if you have time to review us, I'd really appreciate it. If you're not on Apple, you can also find us on Stitcher, Spotify, and most of the other places you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us along on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or feel free to send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.